to The Podcast Will Act for Change. I am your host, Kat Kemet. This podcast is where we explore the relationship between theater and film arts and advocacy. Today, I'm joined by Bill Fitzhugh, award-winning novelist, playwright, and screenwriter. Bill hails from Jackson, Mississippi, where he worked at the University of Southern Mississippi as a program director, music director, and DJ. After moving to Seattle to attend the University of Washington, he worked as a comedic radio program host with Matt Hansen that they later produced as a TV pilot called Stellavision. Bill has been living and working in Los Angeles since 1988, working simultaneously as a TV writer and paralegal. And in 2008, his novel, Pest Control, which he adapted from a screenplay he'd written, was produced for the stage. I first met Bill at the group rep at the Lonnie Chapman Theater in North Hollywood. It was there I saw a musical adaptation of his novel, A Perfect Harvest. The lighthearted musical theater romp titled The Altruist follows the story of a terminally ill patient that decides to become the ultimate, ultimate altruist by donating all of his organs while he's still alive. While the musical is fun, high energy, upbeat, the subject matter contrasts with heavy themes of bodily autonomy, end-of-life care, and the bureaucracy surrounding medicine, organ donation, and physician-assisted suicide. Bill's satirical take on this dark subject matter is informed, well-researched, and in spite of it all, endlessly funny. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kat. Now, Bill, my first question for you is when... And why did you first decide to start writing satire? Early on, um, in high school, there was a, a program, I don't know if they still have it, called Junior Achievement. They still have that? Okay. They still do, yeah. So th they came to uh, my high school, and um, one of the companies that sponsored uh, one of the companies, one of the JA companies, was uh, the Lamar Life Insurance Company, which happened to own uh, television and radio station licenses. And they uh, had the, uh, uh, the the big AM Top 40 radio, WJDX, as well as the big FM rock radio station, WZZQ. And so I, I signed up for that because, I mean, everybody, we all listened to ZZQ. It was, it was a rock station long before classic rock happened i mean it was it was what evolves into classic rock and so the um uh the the, the some older guys i was i was maybe a sophomore junior uh some older people from a different high school were part of the company and they decided they wanted to do a, a political interview program and so this is going to run it this is you know part of public service requirements for a, a license and so they're going to run these shows at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning on Sunday when nobody's listening. <laughs> um, but uh, so but and they did one interview with some you know local politicians and it was just some dumb high school kids asking softball questions and and the guy, you know, being a, a politician. And it was terrible. It was nice. Like nobody wants to even if anyone's if anyone's listening, they don't want to hear this. Right. Um, so, so I staged a coup. And some, <laughs> some friends of mine and I voted these guys out of office um, and said, we're going to do a show about rock and roll, um, about, you know, the artists that everybody listens to on the station. Uh, so I was the writer and the narrator and 
produced, well, I, I had, I, I learned production from one of the guys at the radio station who was our mentor. Um, but <clears throat> so the shows were straightforward histories of bands interspersed with music from the bands. Um, but there were also, so part, part of the thing was you had to have somebody, oh, there's my new puppy. Um, uh, in, in addition to writing and producing programs, the, the, the idea of, of junior achievement is it's a company. So somebody has to go sell ads because that's how radio works. Right. Um, so, uh, we had an ad for, a, 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 the locals, uh, Coca-Cola distributor or somebody. Um, and instead of just taking one of their pre-produced commercials, I decided I would write one. And it was a spoof of Genesis, not the band, but the Bible Genesis. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was chaos and void and, and then God created, you know, Coca-Cola. And then, uh, the, and, and then it was a Dr. Pepper commercial. And, and we had this, the, the music from Jesus Christ Superstar in the background and but it was I was just you know just playing on the familiarity with the words of Genesis, but I turned it into a Dr. Pepper commercial, <laughs> and, right? And it was terrible, but <laughs> you know that so that was but it was I, I was you know I like to make fun of stuff, um, uh, uh, and and religion is one of my favorite targets, <laughs> uh, and so that's that was probably one of the first things. Um, yeah, that was probably one of the very first things. And then it just, you know, I, I don't do, I, so, so since then I've done a whole bunch of different comedy forms, uh, radio stuff that was kind of like the National Lampoon Radio Hour, um, where you make, you know, you do phony commercials and you do phony game shows and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so we turned the radio show into a television pilot. And, you know, everything's got some satire in it. Some of it's just goofy character stuff. Right. Um, and then wanted to, wanted to, you know, get some sort of sketch comedy writing thing going. Uh, actually, this was so long ago that I called, my writing partner and I called Saturday Night Live's offices and asked for Al Franken. And he answered oh the phone. Oh, gosh. <laughs> And we say, hey, Al, we got this radio show out in Seattle. Can we send you some tapes? Maybe you can, you know, think about us. And he did. And he said, well, you know, it's pretty funny stuff, you know, but you got to live in New York. It's like, oh, we know. <laughs> not moving. Yeah. Can't we just send it in? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, just spent, you know, everything I've written is, is you know, I'm, I'm trying to be funny. I'm usually trying to make fun of something in the course of telling the story. Right. Um, Entertainment Weekly reviewed one of my books and just said, he doesn't write mysteries so much as he writes social lampoons. And I thought, well, that's close. So that was actually something that I thought was pretty interesting watching the altruist is that it, it was hilarious, but it didn't really feel like you were making fun of what would be, I guess, the victims in the scenario, the organ donors themselves, the physicians, you, you struck an interesting balance of the people who were on the chopping block were people associated with the bureaucracy of it. Um, how did you strike 
that balance in the in the comedy of the altruist. Well, yeah, you know, there's nothing. I don't think it it's, would be sort of punching down to make fun of somebody who's dying and needs a a liver or whatever. Right. Um, and it's and and I'm not sure that it's uh, it's it's frequently it's about the circumstance. I, I, I take a lot of my books are um, normal people in abnormal situations. Right. Most people aren't on the waiting list for an organ. It's an abnormal situation. Um, so, okay, that's interesting. And But the fact that the bureaucracy leaves so many people uh, to die, I mean, mm -hmm. not, not, that's not the plan, but um, that's the result of how they've developed this thing. And so that's, to me, that's, that's worth exploring. And I'll always... You know, you could write a very serious play about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, but somebody could, you know, very dramatic. And, mm -hmm. and um, but I'm not that I can't I can't do it. Not that I don't want to. I, I, I've i tried to write a, a serious thriller and it was terrible just because <laughs> I, I kept thinking, oh, here's this would be funny. What if? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, but but the the genesis of this particular story is is long and convoluted and it goes back to when i wrote my second novel which was called the organ grinders which was the first transplant book um which is about xenografting which is the biotech industry trying to find ways to transplant animal organs into people and since i wrote that i mean as, as recently as a few months ago they've transplanted a couple of transgenic pig hearts into patients to, you know, who were going to die, and they right. and they knew that even with the transgenic heart, they weren't going to live. But they wanted to see how how far along they'd come in terms of solving the rejection problem, which is the whole problem with transplants. The connecting the parts is is easy; it's the body's rejection uh, that's got to be overcome. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I wrote the organ grinders. And I happened to know a playwright by the name of Leonard Gersh, who wrote a very famous play uh, that was turned into a movie called Butterflies Are Free. And um, anyway, so Leonard uh, read Organ Grinders and sent me this very funny email about, oh, we should turn this into a musical. And he wrote a few lines of lyrics, um, some of which are in the altruist. Because um, And I kept saying the, those lyrics over and over, and I finally heard, you know, you could sing, I don't know if he wrote it to this melody, but you could sing it to the caissons go marching along. So I just got that and fleshed it out to a full song. So anyway, but but I, I thought, well, it, when he sent me the email, you know, yeah, it's, that's a funny idea. We got all these transgenic baboons doing dance numbers and, um, and so forth, but I, I'm not... I don't know how to write a play. I'm not interested, and I just filed that away. And then some years later, there's a story uh, about a guy in Georgia who was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, and, and he said, I've got a better idea. Let's just take all my organs, save eight people. I don't have to die that way. And I thought, that's a great story. It's very dramatic, and I don't know how to make it funny. So I filed that away. Mm. And then California passed the... Um, AB 15 some years ago, which is a right to physician assisted death 
for terminal patients. And the way ideas work, you know, light bulb, right. those two things came together and said, oh, this is perfect. You know, uh, th this guy's in the same circumstance as the guy in Georgia. Um, he sees that he can, you know, get a way out by uh, taking advantage of AB 15. But then the idea of the organ donation comes up and there's conflict. Yay. Um, so we can fight this in court. We can do this. And then this producer shows up, want to turn it into a musical. It's like, right. now I've made it funny. So well, I, I thought it was very interesting how much information was included in the altruist. There were things that that I learned actually through watching the play. And um, when I was looking up your personal background for the podcast, I realized you were a par paralegal at one point. Um, how, how did that factor in to the research? And especially, did you dive into any of the legal jargon surrounding um, the bill California passed or any of that while writing? Yeah, the, the, the paralegal job was just, you know, a, a day job, you know, while we, you know, try to make a, you know, get into the industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it actually is, is much, it, it was very helpful for learning how to edit, because I was summarizing depositions. That was almost, other than doing some document production calling, the main thing I did was summarize depositions, which is to say, you get this 400 page deposition, and you try to get it down to 70 pages so the lawyers you know, know where to look for the right information. Mm -hmm. And sometimes because of the format, you'd have a block of text that would split a page. And it's like, I've wasted half a page. I've got to find something I can cut out of that to make it fit back on that page. And you just find all this stuff that, that, that doesn't add anything. Take that out. Take that out. So anyway, uh, there wasn't a lot of research there. The research came when I started writing novels as opposed to screenplays where you, you you should do some research before you write a screenplay if it's about something you don't know. Mm -hmm. But you can't really stick it in very much. That's, you know, uh, you can't write a bunch of factual stuff about insects in a, you know, in a screenplay without it coming across as bad exposition. Um, but in a novel, you know, that you can get, you can put more of that stuff in there. So um, with pest control, I did an enormous amount of research on insects, and I, you know I stuck way too much of it in the book, but it had its own little charm. Um, but then going forward with like the organ grinders, uh, there was an article in um, the San Francisco Chronicle about a guy who had HIV who wanted to get a baboon bone marrow transplant. So this is back in '98 or '99. So a long time ago, but he wanted to get a bone, a baboon bone marrow transplant to see if that would, you know, help with the HIV. Um, and it was everybody was up in an uproar about, you know, this is this is uh, and that's where I came across the, the word xenografting. Um, mm. And everybody was, you know, oh, it could, uh, you know, release all these new pathogens in humans if you do this. And uh, anyway, he finally got permission to have the thing done. It didn't help, and he subsequently passed away. But all the research into the biomedical uh, uh, aspects of this, both the the science part as well as the financial part, was fascinating. Um, 
And so I, I yeah, I became a really big researcher. And um, uh, so it, it informs, uh, you can't just write all, all, all of your research, that's, that's dull. So it's, you've got to have characters who bring that into the story. Right. Um, so um, uh, in, 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 in doing The Altruist, by that point, I'd already written three novels about transplants. And so I have files. I have 10 linear feet of documents about organ transplants and crazy stories. You know, the, the uh, people selling their kidneys in, in India and all this stuff. Um, so I can just, and, and I've got a lot of it in my head. And so writing the story was easier because I, I, I know enough about it now to, um, uh, to, to, to pique people's interest. Right. What was some, one of the most interesting or some of the most interesting things you learned during that research process? Um, God, there's just a million things. Uh, it's like I, I, I ran into a problem in uh, the novel Heart Seizure, which is a woman has worked her way up to the top of the transplant list for hearts, but she has AB negative blood. So that's very rare. And, and blood types matter with heart transplants, especially. Um, and then the president, who also happens to have AB negative blood, has a fainting spell, which, you know, we know, the reader knows, no, he had a heart attack, he needs a transplant. And yeah. so, so they go to steal the heart that's supposed to go to this guy's mom. Uh, they steal the heart, the son steals the heart back from the people in the black helicopters and goes on the run. So the president's people are trying to catch them to get the heart back. The president's political opponents people are trying to make sure that they get away with it so the president doesn't get the heart. And at one point it dawned on me, well, why can't the president just get an artificial heart? Ah, you know, that, that that the whole thing falls apart if there's, a, there's, there's an alternative. So I go to my uh, transplant consultant, um, and say, well, what do I do? He says, uh, oh, easy. He's on blood thinners and you can't be on blood thinners and have an artificial heart. You'll just bleed to death. Oh. Problem solved. <laughs> so, Interesting. It, yeah, so it's just, it, and that's just weird stuff like that comes up. And because I could have simply ignored and never raised the issue of artificial heart. But I'm, as I'm writing it, I'm thinking somebody's going to catch me. And, mm -hmm. and I, I can't leave something, a potential solution, just ignored. Got to deal with it. Right. So, um, yeah. And so things like that happen a lot. But and and it's only because uh, I wouldn't have known that. I mean, I, as much research as I've done on these things, I that never would have come up. So asking experts who already know this stuff right. is just you know, have, you got to have some good experts on your, on your, uh, in your phone list. Yeah. Uh, in spite of how dark the subject matter is, the, the amount of times I laughed throughout the play, um, kind of took me by surprise. How do you feel that comedy factors in when dealing with stories that have this much gravity and impact and 
potentially people who have gone through this process themselves that may encounter some of these same issues? Well, I, I think the more serious something is, the you, people get, it, it, uh, why you can get the giggles at a funeral and not stop laughing. Serious stuff makes us nervous, but there's something about the human condition that underlies all that serious stuff. And somebody makes the right little crack and, you know, yep. we shouldn't be he's dead, you know? And, and, and so serious issues um, lend themselves to having the little, having the balloon popped. Right. Um, there's always, there's something underlying it, and it doesn't undermine the seriousness of the issue. It sort of points out, you know, we're 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 so nervous about this, we're going to laugh. Um, but it emphasizes and underlines it. You mean. Right? Yeah, it it points it out without standing on the soapbox and pointing it out. Right. Right. Because nobody wants to hear me, uh, and and I wrote stuff like that. It's like, well, you're just on the soapbox there. It's like you're right. It's not funny. It's, mm -hmm. I'm correct in what I'm saying, but it's not entertaining. Right. Um, and so I, people tune out and you try to find ways to make it entertaining. So is uh, when audiences come to see a show like this, do you want them to leave with that? Leaving with more information than they came in with, but in a way that I guess the comedy will help them remember. Right, yeah. I mean, I raise the questions. And and I think the um, the the question about altruism, the you know, are there limits? You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, not not something that normally comes up in the course of your you know daily conversations. But I this was a great way to to explore that, right? Um, uh, and and there are uh, one of the thousands of articles I have was in uh, the New Yorker. 15 years ago, gosh, that's a little crazy. Um, uh, when when um, people would volunteer to donate a kidney to a stranger, a lot of doctors recoil. Mm. It's like there's something pathologically wrong with you if you want to do that. Um, it's just and so they have to go through extensive psychological evaluation um they don't just say oh great yeah another kidney come on um i think it's gotten they've gotten less suspicious about people who do it but i mean that's that is that's a crazy thing mm -hmm. to, to say i don't know you know i know somebody needs it i don't know who they are it's it's one thing if it's a sibling or, or a spouse. There, there's a connection and, and more logic to why you would make a sacrifice like that. When it's a complete stranger, you know, again, there, there's a whole uh, group of medical ethicists who just think it's just, it's insane. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget what the original question was. Oh, no, you, you, you answered it pretty well. Um... Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm kind of floored by the, the balance that was struck in that. Um, and I, here's where 
I'll get into a little bit of the the questions behind this podcast. Um, now, this particular play, when I watched it, I came out of it feeling so conflicted about the the relationship between physician assisted suicide questions of of mental health because at the at the onset of the play the character is relatively of sound body he's of sound mind but he's ready to go and commit to this before he's really started the decline in health um and discussing the ethics behind it discussing the bureaucracy behind it felt like advocating on behalf of people who are on that donor list and people who are seeking to make that influence, make that change. In your experience, how does advocacy play into theater, into storytelling? Do you think there's a place for it? Do you think that there's a balance to be struck? Uh, well, I mean, any sort of storytelling um, allows you to explore subjects. Right. Um, and so I find something that's that's not just interesting. It's 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 life and death interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you know the stakes are high. That's a good dramatic thing. Um, and it seems like so. There, there's there's the a balance between. I mean, there, there's got to there there's some truth to the the medical ethics notion of you're going to just exploit the poor right you know by you know offering money for their kidneys yeah um well yeah um so if bill gates wanted to do it that wouldn't be exploitation then right so he could do it so uh, let's 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 explore i didn't explore that mm -hmm. but it's it's a question so it, the idea that selling your kidney is exploiting the poor means that at some level on the income range, it would not be exploitation for somebody to want to sell or give away a kidney. Right. That's interesting. Let's 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 look at that. Um, why? Um, so yeah. So so that's I, I, you know. And that raises the whole question about the body as property. Yes. Which is uh, more in Europe in the courts than it is here. But we have, we, we, like we do everything else, we creep slowly toward things. We don't suddenly say, okay, everybody can, you know, sell your blood cells and rent your womb and um, sperm and whatever, knock yourselves out. We slowly start, we allow it a little bit at a time. Right, and the court the court cases uh, that I mentioned in in the play are real court cases, uh, Morvi Regents, where a doctor uh, treating somebody for leukemia took blood, developed a cell line, and made a fortune. Well, wait a minute, who who's who was that? You know, wasn't it the guy you took it from? Well, yeah, I, you did the other work. You split it. Well, no, so they had a lawsuit about you know the money. Um, and then there was the uh, the bone marrow thing. Used to be you you could donate bone marrow, um, but you couldn't be uh, uh, compensated for the donation. It wouldn't be a donation. You'd be selling it. But yeah. eventually the court decided, no, you, you can be uh, 
compensated for doing this. So again, it's a little bit closer to who, who does all that stuff belong to? Right. You know, this, it, I, I like to think they're mine. And mm -hmm. if it's mine and the way Americans, uh, property rights are sacrosanct in, in America. Mm -hmm. um, you can do a bunch of stuff, but don't mess with somebody's property or you're going to, you'll be in court. So why aren't my parts my property? I, that's interesting. Yeah. Let's look at that. Um, the uh, in Canada, they have begun to allow what this the guy in my play is trying to do. People who are terminal um, are being allowed to have physician assisted death by organ donation. Mm. So, you know, uh, and, and in Europe, they're getting closer, just like they, they have been with physician-assisted death generally. Right. Um, uh, than, than here in America. So I, I think all that stuff is, is again, because it's life and death, uh, it's fascinating. And, and the people, um, the, the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is the single entity that controls all of this stuff in the U.S. Um, it's like the, I, I explore that notion. It's like, well, you know, that's not very competitive. You know, if if we're, you know, if, if the best results are usually determined by the marketplace, as right. they tell us frequently, you, maybe you have, you know, have some other system competing with these guys. And, um, mm -hmm. And in fact, the uh, One Legacy, which is the um, Southern California Organ Procurement Organization. So our, the UNOS is the overriding federal entity. Right. There are, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 regions geographic in, in the U.S., each of which has an organ procurement organization. And One Legacy is the name of the one in Los Angeles, in Southern California. Uh, and they were... Uh, found themselves uh, in front of a Senate Finance Committee late last, earlier this year, late last year, um, and they were just they were called out on the carpet for being so terrible. Um, people were just dying because you, you, you're not doing this right, or you know, as as well as you know some of the other regions. Uh, now, I you know, no one's doing that on purpose, right. but I'm, I, I suspect there's. You know, people are have jobs that they're trying to protect, and uh, there's liability issues they're trying to avoid. So that you know, and and the result is well that those people just died because you're, you you don't want to get sued. And I understand not wanting to get sued, but we if you got a system that that's the result, well let's let's take a look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mentioned earlier before we were in this podcast, the timing of all of this, um, because we had set up this podcast, I don't know, what was it, a, a, sometime last week. Yeah. And then just yesterday, John Oliver released a video about some of these same issues, which uh, I hadn't thought about until seeing The Altruist. Um, so it's interesting that more and more people are are talking about this. Sorry, this is my cat. I'm going to move him real quick. <laughs> he wants to be involved.
um, it's just interesting. I think that more and more people are starting to be aware of some of these issues, some of the red tape and logistical problems and what the human cost is at the end of the day when these things aren't taken into account. Um, there's no real system of tracking and making sure that it's well organized and well balanced. So people end up waiting for long periods of time. Um, and looking at that through a comedic lens, it just, it makes it something that you think about more readily, I, I, I think, or at least for me it was. Um, so what is it particularly in your mind about satire and about comedy specifically that compels you as a writer? You, you've said that you struggle a little bit more with drama and um, don't really find the soapboxy method of more dramatic elements to hold an audience's attention as well. Um, so what about that compels you to write in a different way? I, I think it's um, that it's it's the thing that I have developed. Because I, I think I had a knack for being glib. Mm. Um, and over time, as I wrote longer and longer for, well, yeah, longer and longer for, I mean, I started writing radio commercials. So 30 right. seconds, 60 seconds, and then sketches, a minute, two, three, four minutes. Uh, and then I was writing sitcom specs, 30 minutes. Uh, then I started writing feature scripts, 120 pages. Um, and when nobody would buy one of those features that I knew was a really good story, well, okay, I guess I'll, I'll try it or I'll write a novel. Never, you know, never crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I've read novels, I know, I know. It's just words. It's information that you dole out in certain ways, and information about characters, and information about the world they're in, and and so forth. Uh, and I just uh, became increasingly adept at knowing how to make a scene funny, make dialogue funny, because I just that's just the way I think. Um, when I see a, a drama. Um, trying to think of I saw something called Red Dog Howling um, at a theater somewhere in North Hollywood years ago it was I think it was the same producer who produced Pest Control as a musical would pr produce this drama and it was just like I was just riveted by by the dramatic stuff the 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 the, the terrible circumstance someone found themselves in and what the solution to that sort I couldn't have written that. I don't know how you do that. It doesn't cross my mind how to set that up and pay it off. You know, um, I think in the same way that, uh, and I've, you know, a lot of the people I know who in the crime fiction community, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you make that funny? Like, how do you make your serious? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just, what I've spent all my time trying to figure out how to do. And, you know, I'm kind of adept at it. So that's just the, the best way. Um, and it's just, it's a, you know, a, a time-honored tradition of, of the way to deal with 
you know, serious human subjects, whether it's government politics, um, ethical issues. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's Jonathan Swift recommending that we just eat the babies to solve the starvation problem. Mm. And the overpopulation in Ireland, you know, that's a little dark, but it's funny. What? And and it didn't really solve the problem. And and you yeah. and you know, you know, you're not gonna they're not gonna read my book or see this play and go, oh, let's go solve that problem now. Yeah, because we hadn't thought of that bill. You know? <laughs> like you know, people are thinking. Of, but but another part of this, and and we talked about this um, before the the podcast about the body parts mm -hmm. thing. It's like, so some of the articles I have, like here, here's one of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there, and, and very play, dark. Well, this play I was going to write. So there's, um, uh, oh, I don't say, oh, here's, here's, here's another good one. He's um, a, oh, wow. Selling yeah. and shipping human body parts. That's the, the, the title of one of the articles right um it, these people uh, find out that there's very little regulation and we can yeah. go tell people who are you know in dire financial straits look um maybe you'd like to donate your your loved one's body to science and they they sell it it's all nice and sweet and then they've got, you know, they take them back to the warehouse and they've got a chainsaw. They, um, and, and they're shipping these parts out. They don't, the refrigeration's iffy. And, um, and then uh, the, the, the loved ones come back and say, well, don't we get the remains? Oh, yeah. And, and they hand them some, uh, a container that's got like chicken bones and cement powder. Yep. It's not actually <laughs> even their ashes. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and it's sort of like so, you know what people are willing to do, you know to to you know, to make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, how low people will go is also I I, I love the the uh, the low uh, bumbling criminal types who who just <laughs> do just like oh god I can't believe you would do that and you know yeah oh they're out there doing it everywhere. Yep. And that's that's another very sort of Elmore Leonard, um, you know, he didn't Elmore didn't deal with a lot of um, uh, super white collar crime stuff. He's much more well known for knuckleheads in Detroit doing you know creepy stuff, and you know those people are are interesting to me. Mm. What is the challenge? For a story like this, what's the challenge for taking it from a novel to a stage adaptation, specifically a musical? Well, actually, this went the other way. I, oh. I I'd written all my novels, and then I had this idea, and I thought, well, it's got songs in it, so I can't make a novel. So I guess I'll learn how to write a play. And so I wrote wrote it as a play. Um, and the development is it's changed a lot. Um, the, the the initial play ends with the judge about to make the the ver announce the verdict they the bomber comes in throws well actually somebody just throws a grenade in through the window it's a it's a grenade boom end of play oh wow 
which I know that's that's kind of fun. Um, but you know, in the course of developing it at, at group rep, um, I've been convinced nah, you need to you know, what happens next. So it, it's it's changed a lot. Right. Um, so anyway, so yeah, it was a play first, and then um, a, a publisher in in London contacted me and said they wanted to republish my backlist. So I went around and got whatever rights I didn't have reverted yet uh, so they could republish everything. And then he said, oh, and by the way, are, are you writing a new one? And so I lied and said, sure, of course I am. It, it's, it's about <laughs> this producer who shows up wanting to make a musical about this guy selling his organs. So, ah, that's fantastic. So I just wrote it as a novel because somebody, you know, said we, we, we would buy that. Mm -hmm. So it, it went that way. And then doing rewrites since the novel version, which allows, which allowed me to develop uh, characters far more than they were in the play and add some other characters who weren't, who aren't in the play. Um, now doing a rewrite, I'm bringing some of that stuff back to a new draft of the play. So they feed into each other. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you being allowed to figure out who the Leonard Gersh character, the the, um, uh, the the producer. You know, he just in in the play the the versions you've seen, he just shows up. I've got this idea, and he starts singing his songs. And meanwhile, they're the other characters are pursuing the legal thing. Oh, here's another song. Yeah. Um, and he didn't, uh, the, the best note that I got from the last two-nighter we did was to point out that Leonard really doesn't have an arc. He shows mm -hmm. up, he just does his thing, and he, you know nothing gets in the way, nothing changes. Um, in the course of writing the novel, I, I, and this isn't exactly how he's changing in, in the new play, but in the novel, it turns out he had... Um, uh, stolen some money from a, a a guy who was giving him money to produce a play things weren't working out so leonard just skedaddles with the ten thousand dollars and for the rest of the story that guy periodically gets closer and closer and closer to finding leonard which he does in the end and then we find out that leonard's walking cane is also a gun oh <laughs> so he shoots the guy um Anyway, uh, but so I, I, in the new draft that I just sent over to uh, Bruce Kimmel, um, Leonard has more of an arc. He's, um, he says he's this person and it's later revealed not, he's not exactly who he says he was and he's got to beg forgiveness and show humility and, and, and do something other than being the bragging, the, you know, the, the impresario big shot that he's been saying he is. Mm -hmm. And so he bonds more with the characters because he's had to show some humanity. Which right. The previous drafts, he's just been not exactly a force of nature, but nothing's really slowed him, slowed down his progress. Right. So, yeah. Do you have um, just next on the horizon, do you have anything else in this vein, or are you um, steering now, you're writing in a new direction? Um, a, like a new play or a new version of the old one? 
uh, new, well, are you writing any new plays or new novels? And um, what is what has captured your interest most recently? Well, I, I almost uh, did the story or started, in fact, I did start it. Um, I have a file here called Heads Will Roll um, because one of the body parts stories in the news was about a, a mother and daughter who were running one of these horrible outfits somewhere in Colorado with a warehouse full of parts that were rotting and all this mm -hmm. you know, terrible stuff. And I thought, well, it's it's a, oh, it, it's a mother and daughter who've had conflict over something, figure that out. Um, and the, the daughter comes back home after leaving, dad has died, the will is read, they, they're expecting something to come their way and turns out all their coming their way is a big load of debt. Dad, Oof. dad is, you know, not wasn't, wasn't who he said he was. And, and then the funeral guy wants a bunch of money for the funeral and they find out about the body parts thing. And they decide, well, why let them make all the money? Let's us go into business. So it's, so they and mom and daughter have had conflict and then they they bond over running this horrible business mm. of, of body parts you know so mom comes in with a you know a, a, a butcher's outfit blood everywhere it's like hey, we got to get those those uh, those shoulders out to denver tomorrow you know yeah and so i i thought about doing that but then i thought man i just did an organ thing everybody's gonna think that's all i got and so Actually, I'm 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 writing a different play that's just a, 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 a some some knucklehead criminals. There are body parts involved, but it's nothing to do with transplants. Um, and um, it's it's fun. It was it was a short story I wrote for um, for, for this book. Die behind the wheel. And so stories inspired by the songs of Steely Dan. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I wrote a short story called Green Earrings, and I thought, hey, you know, that might be a play. So, um, so that's what I'm working. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm looking forward to uh, keeping up with the progress on the altruist, and um, looking forward to the new stories that you write. Um, cool. I just wanted to end this with just a thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing your story. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest and a lot of information that I'm sure people are still gleaning as things come to light about uh, the organ donation industry. Um, thank you very much. And I will see you next time. And I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. Thanks, Kat.